Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Dealing with pests can be a pain. But relax, Terminix can help because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. As the night draws in and the fire blazes on the hearth, we warn the children by telling them stories. The Three Little Pigs warns them always to use solid construction materials. But my stories are for the education of the grown-ups. And my stories are all true. I'm Tim Harford. Gather close and listen to my cautionary tales. It was just before lunchtime, on the 14th of October, 1929, when Christopher Birdwood Thompson stood up from his desk, donned his stiff Homburg hat, adding a little more to his imposing height of six feet five inches, and walked briskly up the stairs to the roof terrace. Lord Thompson worked on Whitehall, the street at the heart of the British government. To his left, Downing Street, the official residence of the Prime Minister, to his right, the Houses of Parliament. But he wasn't looking left or right. Like everyone else in London that day, he was looking straight up. Cruising low over Whitehall was the largest aircraft the world had ever seen. It was a long, slim, silver teardrop, an airship. It was enormous, 735 feet long, the size of a large Manhattan skyscraper lying on its side, hovering right over their heads. It was a glimpse, Lord Thompson liked to say, of the future. The vast airship had slowed to a leisurely 40 miles an hour to allow the crowd a better view. People gathered on the Thames embankment. The Prince of Wales, the future King Edward VIII, flew his biplane up to take a look. He would have been able to read in clear black letters near the airship's nose 
its utilitarian name, R101. It must have been quite a moment for Lord Thompson. Lord Thompson was the British Secretary of State for Air, and if not for his bold ideas, this remarkable ship would never have existed. I do very often have a sort of vision as to what aviation will be in the future. And I can foresee the time when noble lords will travel in gliders with light engines, winging their way westward along the valley of the Thames, northward to Scotland, and southwards to Hampshire, Berkshire, and Kent. On their way, they will need to rest. Perhaps they may call in at one of these giant airships, floating serene and safe, high up and far removed from terrestrial dirt and noise. It was a vision indeed. The R101, accordingly, was designed as a luxurious floating hotel, a hotel that would swiftly carry men like Lord Thompson to the furthest corners of the British Empire. But the R101 had a rival. When he commissioned the R101, Lord Thompson had proposed a competition between two teams of airship designers. A private company, Vickers, would build the R100. Lord Thompson's air ministry would design and build its own ship, the R101. The air ministry, of course, would be the one to adjudicate which of the two airships was best. Lord Thompson had argued his case in a cabinet meeting. These arrangements will promote a spirit of friendly emulation. Come off it. What you mean is bloody competition. That competition came to represent more than a clash between two teams. Rather absurdly, it came to symbolise a struggle for supremacy between the two contrasting economic systems. The press quickly caught on to the idea of this contest, dubbing the R100 the capitalist airship and the R101 the socialist airship. Lord Thompson affectionately called them my children, although he certainly had a favourite child. He once said, The R100 brought me pleasure. I hope that the R101 will bring me joy. But the sibling rivalry would be less than friendly. In fact, it would be deadly. We're sometimes told that competition is good, it raises everyone's game, it brings out the best in us. But sometimes, competition leads to tragedy. You're listening to another cautionary tale. Wind the clock back a few years and put yourselves in the shoes of the team building the R100, the capitalist airship. The R100 crew were resentful. They had a tight budget and were being judged against a competitor with every advantage. Their rivals had more money and better facilities to build the R101 at the Royal Airship Works, just north of London. But they were also the ones judging the contest player and referee, all at once. The capitalist R100 was built in Howden, Yorkshire. It was the far end of the country from the seat of power in London. The old airship shed there was in poor repair. It was bitingly cold in winter, 
and the corrugated iron roof leaked all year round. The airship framework was eaten away by corrosion. The paper-thin cotton covers grew mould. The gas bags themselves were glued together from over a million cow intestines, the only material that was strong and light enough to contain the ever-elusive gas, hydrogen. Beneath the space-age curves of these great silvery vessels lurked the viscera of some vast mammalian collective. The smell of the cow gut was everywhere, and the rats loved to gnaw at the gas bags. And there was another problem. The government air ministry refused to build a mooring mast at Howden. That might sound like a minor matter, but it meant that the only safe place to park both airships was at the Air Ministry's Royal Airship Works down near London. Once the capitalist R100 had been completed, it would fly down to the Grand Tower at the Royal Airship Works, where its better-funded, better-connected rivals would sit in judgement, and its designers might never see it again. The Howden team began to wonder whether, after completing their task, they would ever get to build another airship. The Capitalist R100 team did have one advantage. The chief designer was a genius. Barnes Wallace had designed several airships before, and he would in time become famous for designing a bouncing bomb that could skim like a stone over the surface of a reservoir, destroying German dams in the Second World War. But all that was to come later. As the icicles formed inside the shed at Howden, he was exhausted. The schedule was brutal, and the capitalist airship team seriously understaffed. Barnes's wife, Molly, complained. In our poor little hangar, Barnes works late writing answers to idiotic people who don't know one end of an airship from the other. Meanwhile, the rival team, with their generous government funding, had dozens of people to deal with bureaucratic chores. Still, as I said, Barnes Wallace was a genius, and he needed to be. Building an airship is a difficult task. Both the R100 and the R101 were to have a rigid skeleton to support the engines, cockpits and passenger cabin while travelling at 70 miles an hour. The airships needed covers that could withstand the perishing rays of the sun, the laceration of the rain and the tugging and heaving of the wind. The whole thing would be wrapped around a series of those vast intestinal gas bags containing several million cubic feet of extremely flammable hydrogen. And yet everything needed to be ethereally thin and light. These challenges existed for any airship, but the R100 and R101 were attempting to solve them at a larger scale than any previous craft. The competition required that the socialist R101 was to fly from London to British India in four days, a journey that would take 15 days by ship, and even longer in a plane that would incessantly be making risky landings to refuel. The capitalist R100 was to fly from London to Canada and back. In the 1920s, these long-haul missions were the equivalent of putting a man on the moon. Barnes Wallace was probably the best man in the country to lead such a moonshot. So, naturally, 
The team from the well-funded government airship sent their designs up to Wallace to get his views. You know. The spirit of friendly emulation. And all that. But as sleep-deprived, overworked Wallace sat reviewing the plans of his rivals, he didn't really feel like helping. He didn't respect his opposite number. He's a mere works manager, not a technologist in any sense of the word. And he knew that the game was rigged. Why should Barnes Wallace offer any insight into the problems of his rivals? It is the crudest piece of design which I have ever seen. He sent the blueprint for the R101, the socialist airship, back to the Royal Airship Works with a frosty note offering no suggestions. Until it has been shown unsatisfactory, I prefer the arrangement we have worked out for R100. Then, among the rats, he returned to his thankless task in the cold shed at Howden. As a loyal listener to cautionary tales, you probably consider yourself pretty smart, and you are. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before Nerd Wallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet, but you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix may not be able to rewrite history or take on society's problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home. Pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalised pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians know your local pests the best. So even though they don't know in-depth world history, you can bet they know how to make your pest problem history. And with customised plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. There's nothing inherently wrong with competition. It stops us being lazy, and it allows us to experiment with different approaches. 
Competitors can learn from each other and copy what works, so competition is a good thing, but you can have too much of a good thing. Faced with extreme competition, we may do all sorts of things we wouldn't have done in a gentler contest. We rush things. We crack under the stress. We cheat. Some economists have long been aware of this problem. In 1998, two of them, Robert Drago and Gerald Garvey, studied a large variety of workplaces, distinguishing those places that used high-stakes promotion schemes and those that didn't. Managers in the high-stakes workplaces ran their organisations like a tournament. Junior staff who produced the best performance would be rewarded with a promotion, more money, more status, better conditions. Everyone else would miss out. Classic high-stakes competition. These competitions did make people work hard. But the problem was that workers also stopped helping each other. They wouldn't give advice or lend each other tools. Why should they? The promotion tournament had turned the workplace into a cutthroat competition. If you helped a colleague, you were helping a rival. You were sabotaging your own chances of success. Drago and Garvey's work perfectly described the psychology of the UK's great airship competition. It was clear to the capitalist R100 team that if they lost the competition, they were all out of a job. What's more, the competition seemed pretty skewed to them. Their opponents had all the money, all the equipment, and the political connections too. No wonder their lead designer, Barnes Wallace, didn't feel like offering any pointers. And there's a second way in which too much competition can be counterproductive. A few years ago, four behavioural economists, Dan Ariely, Uri Gnizzi, George Lowenstein and Nina Mazar, tested the effect of super-sharp incentives in a study called Large Stakes and Big Mistakes. They offered people huge rewards of up to six months' income if they did well on various tests like replicating sequences on the children's electronic game, Simon, or throwing darts at a target. Bigger prizes should encourage more effort, but we all know that there's a point where the prize is too big, and the pressure is too great. When the incentives were quite small, people did fine. When the stakes were high, people fell apart while trying to do the very same tasks. So let's sit alongside the fat cats at the Royal Airship Works, overstaffed, overfunded, and working on the socialist airship, the R101, with the close attention and personal support of the Air Minister himself, Lord Thompson. The government team used to joke about the shoestring budget of their rivals. Maybe someone should lend them a toolkit. <laughs> but the joke hid the pressure. They were suffering from the problem of large stakes and big mistakes. Carrying Lord Thompson's hopes and dreams gave them some advantages, but he was to prove an enormous burden, in more ways than one. You have to understand how important all this was to Thompson. Remember his vision? He saw airships as flying oases, serene and safe, taking the British political class to the distant outposts of their empire. In accordance with Thompson's grand visions, the R101 offered two decks of passenger accommodation, a spacious lounge, promenades by large windows to enjoy the view, 
and a dining room that would seat 60 people, while they enjoyed lavish banquets prepared in the onboard kitchen with serving supervised by the airship steward. Remember, all of this was cradled just underneath 5 million cubic feet of highly flammable hydrogen. There was even, incredibly, a smoking room. All this luxury was a bit ironic for an airship that was supposed to demonstrate the virtues of socialist engineering. But more worryingly, in an experimental ship, these flourishes suggested some serious mission creep. The socialist R101 was over-engineered, over-designed, over-specified and overweight, leaving no leeway for spare fuel, cargo or passengers. The first officer of the R101 could see problems ahead. His name was Noel Atherston, and he'd been at the helm that glorious day when it flew out over London. He was a tough, analytical man who hoped to captain his own airship one day. But having survived two airship crashes in the First World War, he was clear-eyed about the risks. Every crewman is to carry a knife at his belt. Trust me. If you want to survive an airship crash, you cut your way out and you do it fast. Noel Atherston knew trouble when he saw it. There's no use in talking of flying to India with only one stop for refuelling. Put that much diesel in the tanks and it will never get off the ground. Atherston's diaries reveal his concerns. It's a grossly unfair schedule with impossible tasks, all carried out in a mad Russian panic. But still, Lord Thompson increased the pressure. He gave a speech in which he invited a 100 members of Parliament for a ride on the R101. It's a cheap, vulgar stunt and an absolutely unjustifiable risk. Wasn't the R101 supposed to be an experimental aircraft? It was a huge distraction from the rigorous programme of test flights Atherston wanted to conduct. The ship has not finished her trials, has not got her certificate of airworthiness and has not got enough lift to cart 12 tonnes of humans about with any degree of safety. And there was something else that appalled First Officer Atherston. In order to create enough lifting capacity for 100 politicians and their dinner, the R101 crew had been ordered to remove all the parachutes. Remember the research that showed that large stakes led to big mistakes? Lord Thompson was raising the stakes at every opportunity. Mistakes would follow. In the end, the R101 crew decided that the weather was too bad to allow the grand demonstration, and the 100 VIPs had dinner on board a stationary R101. That display of caution displeased Lord Thompson. I was hoping for a free breeze so that it could show off its capabilities. The R101 is an all-weather craft. It really wasn't. But who wanted to tell that to Lord Thompson? The R101 team grew desperate about the lack of lift. In preparation for the all-important flights to India, they expanded the hydrogen gas bags, which gave more lift, but also meant that those fragile cow intestine gas bags were chafing against the bolts of the airship frame. The team even decided to saw the entire airship apart, insert a new central section with extra gas bags, 
and stitch it all together again. This Frankenship was 777 feet long, faster and with more lift. But could it safely fly? October 1930 was the month set for Lord Thompson's favourite child, the R101, to fly to India and back. A spectacular voyage with Lord Thompson himself on board. The months before that trip, in the summer of 1930, should have been the moment of truth. The moment when the madness stopped. First, the R101 was flown to a nearby air show to be shown off to the crowds. It was widely reported to have dipped its nose to salute the king and queen. The crew knew that the salute was actually an uncontrolled nosedive above a crowd of 150,000 people. The huge airship then limped the few miles back to the Royal Airship Works. The R101's captain went to examine the gas bags in an effort to understand what was going wrong. He made his way slowly along the central walkway, then climbed up between the bags. The front bag, and the second, and the third, seemed fine, though the smell of mould was all-pervasive. Climbing up the netting that contained the fourth bag, he shone his flashlight around and noticed something. Small holes. The same was true on bag five, and nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. In an effort to give the ship more lift, the R101 team had overfilled the fragile bags, which meant that they were rubbing against the airframe. Hydrogen was bleeding out everywhere. If the airship could hardly make a two-hour round trip, how on earth was it going to fly, as Lord Thompson demanded, several thousand miles to India? Surely it was the time to admit that the airship wasn't safe. No. The airship team patched up the problem and hoped for the best. A few weeks later, a Mr Frederick McWade, official airship inspector, came to examine the R101. Mr McWade climbed up between the mouldering gas bags, puffing and blowing with the effort. He was nearly of pensionable age after all. But then, you don't spend 27 years inspecting airships without learning to recognise warning signs. Absolutely ridiculous. He peered closely at the repaired gas bags. This is a death trap. Could the patch-up job really be trusted to hold? How many hours of flight before it failed? Mr McWade had no doubts. His report was a thunderclap. I cannot recommend to you the extension of the present permit to fly or the issue of any further permits or certificates. R101 was grounded. But this was a thunderclap that nobody was prepared to hear. So they covered their ears. The R101 had been built by the government and the government issued permits to fly. Nobody wanted to disappoint Lord Thompson, and so Mr McWade was overruled. There was another opportunity to call a halt in the late summer of 1930, when Barnes-Wallace's deputy on the R100 visited the Royal Airship Works to see the R101. His name was Neville Norway. 
He was later to become famous as the novelist Neville Shute. Neville Shute Norway was mightily impressed by the appearance of his bitter rival, the R101. She is an amazing piece of work. The finish and the workmanship is extraordinarily good, far better than that of our own ship. But you don't sound totally convinced. Well, the design seems almost unbelievably complicated. The imagination has run riot regardless of the virtue of simplicity and utterly regardless of expense. Something strange happened to shoot Norway while he was visiting his rivals at the Royal Airship Works. Two officers looked round to check that nobody was watching, then pulled him into a private office. They brought out a large sheet of silver fabric, clearly a section of airship cover. Shoot Norway rubbed it between his fingers and watched in horror as it crumbled into flakes like a piece of charred parchment paper. Good God! Where did this come from? It had come from the nose of R101, where another attempt at patch and make do had backfired as glue had weakened the lacquer on the cover. I hope they've got all this stuff off the ship. They say they have. Neville Shute Norway shrugged. There was nothing he or I could have done about it. Perhaps that was true, but Neville Shute Norway didn't try. Before the capitalist R-100's flight to Canada, the government R-101 team had suggested that perhaps these long, dangerous flights might be postponed to allow for further testing. If they'd been able to be more honest, if they'd been under less competitive pressure, they might have begged, Dear God, please don't make us fly to India. Our airship is a death trap. But they didn't. They couldn't. They just politely suggested a postponement and shoot Norway and the R100 team said no. Again, the bitter competition between the staffs loomed large. Perhaps if we had realised at the time how very, very bad that ship was, how real the danger of complete disaster if they started for India, we might have taken a different attitude to this approach. I wonder, if the underfunded R100 team were to keep their jobs... Ours must be the organisation to carry on the work, and they must give up. But could they give up? Lord Thompson had been pressuring the Royal Airship Works to stick to the schedule for the R101. With the Government of India preparing to receive him, a low-key experiment had turned into a grand diplomatic mission. The Imperial Conference had convened in London. This 45-day summit, including the leaders of nations as far apart as Canada, India and New Zealand, was held every four years. Travel took so long that it was impractical to meet more often. So, Lord Thompson had a spectacular stunt in mind. Having greeted the visitors at the conference, he would fly to India and back again, in plenty of time for the end of the proceedings, fully rested after floating on a bubble of air. His triumphant speech would present his plans for a fleet of airships to link together the world. Large stakes indeed. I must insist on the programme for the Indian flight being adhered to, as I have made my plans accordingly. Some of the R101 team 
begged their bosses to speak to Lord Thompson about delaying the flight, but they refused. His lordship had made his plans accordingly. As a loyal listener to cautionary tales, you probably consider yourself pretty smart, and you are. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com/now. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix may not be able to rewrite history or take on society's problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home: pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls, because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians know your local pests the best. So even though they don't know in-depth world history, you can bet they know how to make your pest problem history. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's t e r m i n i x.com to book online today. Late in the afternoon of October the 4th, 1930, the crew of R101 waited impatiently for the arrival of their most prestigious passenger on their voyage to India, Lord Thompson himself. There was a dreadful storm brewing. Ideally, they'd have left 2 hours earlier or half a day later to avoid it. But that was unthinkable. Lord Thompson's assistant ought to be publicly shot for putting such impossible tasks to us. That was Noel Atherston complaining to his diary. He left the diary behind on his desk. His final entry, let's hope for good luck and do our best. He would never write another. The weather didn't worry Lord Thompson. The ship, he insisted, was stormproof. To ride the storm has always been my ambition, and who knows, we may realize it on the way to India. While they waited for Lord Thompson, the ground crew topped up the gas bags. What's the use of pumping gas into a bloody colander? 
everyone in the crew knew the bags were in poor shape. George William Hunt was one of the senior officers on the R101. His son, Albert, remembers carrying his father's kit bag as they walked down the road to the airship shed at Cardington. It was a few hours before takeoff. In the shadow of the ship, his father stopped. Then he turned to his son. Now, look, lad. I want you to make me two promises. One is you'll join the Navy, and the other one is you'll promise me that you'll look after your mother and your sister, because I may not be coming back off this flight. The R101's captain understood how marginal his ship's lifting capacity was. He tried to save every ounce. When crew members tried to take cookie jars aboard, they were told to transfer the cookies into paper bags. Each had a spare shirt and underwear, again in a paper parcel. Suitcases would have been far too heavy. It was 5.15 in the afternoon when Lord Thompson's chauffeur drove his lordship's Daimler up to the mooring tower. And the noble lord, still wearing his Homburg hat, unfolded his elongated frame and stood at the foot of the mast to admire his airship. His luggage was loaded into the tower's elevator, including the briefcase, with his notes for the triumphant speech he would deliver on his return. Here we are. His lordship's dress short, two trunks, four suitcases and 24 bottles of champagne. And we'll need four porters to shift this carpet. Hurry along. Ah, yes. The ornamental carpet. It weighed as much as a full-grown man. My precious carpet. We'll have it down for the dinners at Ismailia and Karachi to do the thing in style. At 6.30, with Lord Thompson and his carpet on board, the R101 finally slipped the tower. Immediately, the nose dipped, and the captain released tons of ballast water to get her level again. Heavily loaded with fuel and carpets and champagne, the ship was pitching and rolling even more than usual. It turned towards France in the teeth of the storm. The crew were exhausted, having been working around the clock to squeeze in short test flights and patch up problems with the engines, the gas bags and the cover. Inside the passenger decks, the esteemed guests, including Lord Thompson and the airship's designers, were being served salad, cold meats and fish. Three hours into the flight, the R101 crossed the English coast and chugged out over the sea towards France. The passengers chatted, smoked and listened to music before making their way to their beds. They didn't realise quite how low over the waves the airship had dropped. It was sagging under the weight of the rain soaking into the cover. The shattered crew kept trying to lift up her nose, get her to show a bit of pride in the face of the storm. All the while, the ship was barely making progress. At two o'clock in the morning, there was a change of watch. The airship was supposed to be flying at 2,000 feet over the town of Beauvais, north of Paris. But the crew could see Beauvais Cathedral up close as they passed. The ship was diving. In the smoking room, some glasses and a soda water siphon slid off the table. Down on the ground, despite the late hour and the rain, 
a Monsieur Alfred Roubaix was out hoping to bag some rabbits for Sunday lunch. As the Titanic ship loomed down out of the low clouds, he gazed in horror. Far bigger than the Cathedral of Beauvais, the R101 was moving slowly forward, her nose down as though she had given up and just wanted to be allowed to rest. Her thin, wet, fragile front cover had almost certainly ripped under the incessant winds, exposing the perforated hydrogen gas bags to the direct force of the storm. The airship briefly pulled out of its dive, a final show of defiance. Then she dipped again. We're down, lads! At 2.08, R101 gently nosedived into a forest near Beauvais, the dark branches tearing into her skin. She was travelling at no more than 15 miles an hour. The passengers would have felt an impact like falling off a bicycle. But no bicycle carries 5 million cubic feet of hydrogen. A single spark, and the darkness of the forest was banished by an instant hellish blaze. Alfred Roubaix was the only witness. I heard the people um, in the wreckage crying for help. I was 100 yards away, and the heat was awful. I ran as hard as I could away from that place. Just eight men managed to get out. Among the 48 victims of the crash were First Officer Noel Atherston, who'd repeatedly called for the flight to be postponed, the entire design team of the R101, and the boss of them all, Christopher Birdwood Thompson. The competition was over. R101, the serene hope of the future, had lost. As Neville Shute Norway later wrote, If the Cabinet Committee wanted competition, they'd got it, with a vengeance. But I wouldn't say that it was healthy. There was an inquiry, but nobody from the rival R100 team was asked to give evidence. Even in tragedy, the bitterness of the contest remained. But of course, of course, after the R101 crashed, the R100 never flew again. It was sawn up, bulldozed, and sold for scrap. There are some competitions, then, that everybody loses. You've been listening to Cautionary Tales. If you'd like to find out more about the ideas in this episode, including links to our sources, the show notes are on my website, timharford.com. Cautionary Tales is written and presented by me, Tim Harford. Our producers are Ryan Dilley and Marilyn Rust. The sound designer and mixer was Pascal Wise, who also composed the amazing music. Starring in this season are Alan Cumming, Archie Panjabi, Toby Stevens and Russell Tovey, alongside Enzo Chilente, Ed Gochen, Melanie Gutteridge, Masaya Monroe and Rufus Wright. And introducing Malcolm Gladwell. Thanks to the team at Pushkin Industries, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg, and of course, 
the mighty Malcolm Gladwell, and thanks to my colleagues at the Financial Times. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.